0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode, um, where we are in conversation with Namita Vijaydharaya uh, to discuss her wonderful, wonderful uh, ethnography, the industrial ephemeral, labor and love in Indian architecture and construction.
1: Hi, Namita. It's so wonderful to have you here today. Hi, Garima. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation to speak with you about my book, and I appreciate you engaging with it.
0: Um, As a tradition, um, I'd like to start uh, by asking you how you came to anthropology and uh, and your journey is particularly interesting because you started as an architect and then found anthropology or anthropology found you. So I'm quite curious about how you came to the subject um, and maybe also how you came to this particular research project, which is your
1: first monograph. Um, Yeah, sure. It's uh, a... I basically began my, my educational career as an architect and worked in architecture for a long, well, not a long time, but about three years. I come from an architectural family, so my mother had a practice as well. Um, and uh, one of the things that I was really dissatisfied about when I was practicing architecture uh, was the fact that it's a very elite uh, profession, And it is a profession that continuously erases the work of, you know, very many people. Uh, And uh, I wasn't really happy practicing within it. And so I wanted to switch into looking at it from a more research perspective. And um, uh, originally, when I applied for PhDs, um, the department I ended up in was the only anthropology department I'd applied to. I'd applied for art history PhDs. Uh, where I wanted to study urban informality as an art historical category. Uh, And uh, what I got from a lot of the art history departments was this is not an art historical category, which is problematic. It says something about the discipline of art history in itself. This is not an art historical category, uh, and you should look at anthropology more and more. And so uh, when I did get into Harvard's Anthro department, I, you know, everybody there liked the topic and was interested in engaging with it, um, and uh, w- and I wanted to look at informal market spaces and informal uh, economies at that particular time period, um, and that's so I actually became an accidental anthropologist. But uh, in retrospect, I think it was just in my blood. I, I really uh, adore um, sort of being on the ground uh, and you know talking with people and understanding the different dimensions of people's lives uh, and also just the, uh, the, the sort of overall uh, uh, attention of anthropology to power. I think I'm just grateful uh, for those uh, tools and those ways of viewing the world that the discipline eventually gave me.
0: And maybe if we could hear from you how you conceptualized your PhD thesis and the monograph um, and um, just the journey of that.
1: Uh, sure. So as I mentioned, I'd come in to study informal uh, urban spaces. So I was interested in street markets. I was interested in festival spaces, uh, those sort of things. And you can see the legacy of the ephemeral kind of tying into uh, those interests as well. Um, uh, but while I started doing preliminary field work, I realized that. Uh, a lot of the the ways in which informal urban informality infa- occurred was due to the formal real estate market, uh, and I use the word formal very loosely, of course, because you know informal and formal have so collapsed in India. Uh, but um, um, I, I was my, I became the real, the real estate market really drove the politics of urbanism, and especially at the time when I entered into uh, my PhD, which was about 2008 it was really you know it was the dip in the market in the united states but india was one of the few sites that was still rising in real estate prices and so there was this global surge uh, into india and a kind of push to to sort of grow indian cities uh, which started in the sort of early 2000s. And so I really caught it at a time when um, a lo- there was a lot of uh, interest in real estate in India. And therefore, I kind of moved towards that. In terms of sort of conceptualizing looking at real estate, I um, I was really interested in the construction site itself uh, because uh, I was interested a in labor politics behind developing urbanism because I think a lot of the literature on urban studies and there was a lot coming out then, a lot of re- recently written work uh, but they it really focused on the workings of a city, uh, but not uh, uh, and also the political dynamics of a city or the history of a city. There's a lot of attention given to informal settlements, but labor politics really fell out of urbanism, and I know that's something you feel uh, strongly about as well. And so, I was really interested in the laboring dimensions and what grows a city, who grows a city. And especially given the fact that I had practiced as an architect and had witnessed these kinds of inequities, these kinds of erasures, I was interested in knowing more. Um, And that said, trying to sort of write about urbanism through construction, two ginormous uh, sort of uh, fields to study and um, I was really interest. I was really trying to figure out how to narrow it down. Uh, and I-, I definitely had one reviewer, you know, from the Werner Grin that in- eventually funded my research, saying it's a very ambitious project. And and the the way I sort of tried to distill it was through locate locating it on a construction site. So going in and out of the construction site. So the construction site became the, the spatial anchor for my project. And through that. Uh everybody I met was connected to the construction site uh, in, in, in one way or the other. And that allowed me to look at the production chain, but also not, uh, you know, not go, go all over the urban region, uh, not, uh, you know, not miss, a, like not have a thousand different people who are speaking to who did not have connections with each other. So the construction sites were really crucial. I started with one large one, but then I felt that the large one I wasn't getting as much of an intimate connection to folks as I wanted because it was so large. And so then I did a smaller stint at a smaller site. So, uh, but both allowed me uh, both allowed me that situated but sort of scalar methodology because I could uh, be within one space, but also talk to all the the, the producers uh, within that space too.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thanks. Um, if we move to the the book itself, um, your central idea of ephemerality and that you know, contrasting with durability is just so fascinating and it reanimates so many of the debates around informality, but also brings it in new light. Um, Before we discuss it more, would you like to share a little about this, the key key thesis of the book, um, which reframes debates around um, urban infrastructures, urban planning, uh, construction, labor, um, through this this dualistic lens of what is ephemeral, what is
1: durable um, and the contested politics of, of, of that. Sure, uh, thank you. So I think I so the, the main sort of concept I was interested in was ephemeral atmospheres. And I, I roughly defined that as uh, sort of the transient uh, and movements and circulations and erasures of people, materials, objects in construction. Um, and uh, my i wa- I didn't go into the construction site interested in those particular aspects, but I found that those really are the essence of construction work and urban work, this kind of uh, intense temporality that construction brings with it uh, and and, and primarily to the uh, my interest and in sort of, um, contributions that the ephemeral brought to the study of urbanism, I think, is because the, the ephemeral and the durable were constantly cleaved, especially in Indian urbanism. And the ephemeral has always been part of the quote-unquote exotic India dimensions. The you know Everybody loves the festivals, everybody loves the kind of dynamism of Girgao or Chandni Chowk. Uh, and that was really... Uh, Uh, The sort of uh, the way in which the ephemeral had been framed in the Indian context, Uh, and whereas the the large scale real estate projects I was working on were always considered durable, or these massive flyover projects and bridges or all you know are considered durable but being part of a construction site i realized that ephemerality is fundamental to the workings of real estate and ephemerality is fundamental to the infrastructural and architectural growth of a city uh, and therefore i kind of wanted to place it back at the heart of our discussions of urbanism and move it out of its sort of exotic uh, sort of dynamism, but also apoliticalness or epiphenomenalness, uh, and that it is constitutive, and it is constitutive not only in terms of actually constructing the city, but also in terms of the power dynamics, the financial logics. Uh, So it really is at play because it allows for, certain kinds of accumulations, certain kinds of uh, inequities to be produced. And that was the sort of gist of it, uh, of what I was trying to get at in my book.
0: Yeah, and one of the great like method I mean, it's methodology, but also a sort of writing choice and also an epistemological choice that you make uh, is to create this sensorium in the book of sounds and sights and texture and smell, through which you're able to capture the ephemeral and the durable and the play of that, because it's just so amazing when you're in the pit, we're in the pit with you, when you smell the cement in your mother's hair, we can smell it too, it's just so, so effective that you create this atmosphere, I mean, the writing itself is so atmospheric. And I think that is why, you know, the ephemeral becomes this very effective and not just a analytical lens, it just comes alive. Uh, So maybe if you want to speak a little about how, I mean, because it is so creative that you did it this way. So if you want to speak about how you came to this idea and also how you executed it, um, why you think it worked and how you, you took it forward. Yeah, it was just absolutely
1: brilliant. I'm really glad you liked it. It really is uh, something very personal to me. So I'm I'm really glad to see people read it that way as well. Uh, I mean, I think that I mean I was I'm clearly interested in affect. If you think about theories of atm- atmospheres, they really come from uh, theories of affect, and I'm interested in the aesthetic dimensions uh, within that too. Uh, and I also came from a like a generation where uh, of sort of political. Like, Ecological thinkers who are interested in the political economy of affect, uh, and so that was something that I really wanted to uh, use in terms of thinking about the uh, political economic dimensions of construction. Uh, but one of the one of the things I was pretty clear on when I was writing the book was that I hate that break that used to happen in anthropology. And I I think it does less so now of zooming out of your field and kind of uh, bringing in the theoretical anal- analytical lens. Uh, and, and to me, I wanted the theory to be part of the writing. And so the uh, the writing in itself is an, uh, conveys the affect of being there. And that for me was the theoretical uh, contributions as well as the aesthetic and stylistic ones. So I wanted the writing to be immersive, but I also wanted it to take a stand about what an ethnographic writing should be and how ethnographic knowledge should be understood and conveyed. And, and for me, the, the, the attempt was to do it in a sensorial dimension so that you get it before you actually read it or, you know, you read it and you sense it before you actually uh, sort of cognitively get it. And so, Uh, that was my sort of uh, intent well I wouldn't say it was like that's what I sat down to do and that's what came out because I think when you come back from the field you there's just a different there's a different person living in you who just wants or at least that was for me and I just like needed to write and I just wrote so I can't say that oh I began with a mission but as I sort of sat with it and looked at what I produced, I realized that these are stances I'm taking. And I think as you write, when you come back from the field, you are working out your contributions. And so uh, in many ways, uh, it's just that I didn't realize I was doing that because I just came down, sat, and just wrote like, uh, you know, like, well, I took a semester. I mean, fieldwork is difficult, you know? So, and I think in, in anthropology, we often never talk about how violent it can be and so a, a semester was the first semester was very difficult we can talk a bit about ethnographic writing if you want or post or fieldwork and post field work movements but after a semester it just came to me and i just sat and wrote it in like six months
0: yeah no but i'm curious were you also paying attention to sounds and senses when you were in your field notes and in field work or is it something that came back to you later because it's it's just amazing when there is a dust storm It reverberates through the pages, you know, the clang of a metal rod falling and you can hear it echo through two, three, you know, it's just brilliant. And I'm wondering if this is something that,
1: you know, stayed with you and it came in the writing or was it already there in your field notes? Oh, no, absolutely. It was in the field notes. I mean, if you've ever been on a construction site, like you cannot ignore sound. Like even when I was like listening to my recordings, I couldn't hear my own voice or the, the person I was interviewing because there's some machine going on in the background. And it really, uh, when you're on a construction site or in a construction zone, the atmospherics really overtake your senses. So you just, you know, it's the dust. It's, you know, I mean, Delhi heat, I, I, you know, it was like fifty centigrade at times, so you, your skin burns. So I think these were all things that were recorded in the, uh, in the field notes, but also into my consciousness, uh, you know, because they are so powerful, and it's exactly why I feel like they have political, economic weight is because they're so powerful that they, and they overtake everything else, you know, and there's, um, yeah, and especially large scale sites, ex- especially. Uh, you know, when you're in the middle of construction work.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And even in the writing, it really feels like these these sensory forces are making themselves present with this imposing force and it's there. Um, and we're also wading through it, you know, to, to get to the politics or whatever. Um, but this point about bridging the political economy and this the aesthetic and the, the 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 sort of the sensory and the affective, it is so true because you do it so effectively in the book. Um, as 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 we get into the book, um, different types of ephemeralities and durabilities keep piling on one another. And then the politics of what is ephemeral, what is um, what is um, uh, you know what, the politics of erasure uh, and what is considered durable and what not. Um becomes so so clear, um, and it takes a few pages for it to emerge, but it is through the sensory that we get to the politics um, of what is visible, what is invisible, what is forced into invisibility. Um, um, yeah, so that's 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 very true, and it comes through really effectively.
1: Yeah, and I it's it's like um, I was workshopping this with UC Press, and uh, my editor Kate was like, you know, that the the uh, strongest thing it it is is the people because you know once the the, these buildings come up you don't see the workers anymore they're gone they're dispersed and i had it at the back of the book i'm like yes that's the conclusion and she said no you need to move that into the introduction because that's the essence right and so uh in in many ways also it's like who do we want to see who who do we not want to see as we sort of become you know this this sort of emerging giant or are this emerging giant and uh, and uh, the sort of uh, uh, ephemerality of labor politics uh, and laborers uh, in India is, is sort of very um, apparent. So that was also something that I wanted to convey within the book.
0: Yeah, and different types of erasures and different types of ephemeralities uh, that are located um, uh, in different moments in time. So that scene where the building is complete, but it's empty and the eeriness of that ephemerality is so different from, you know, a different type of ephemerality. So it is just that it's also tied to time, to this construction cycle, uh, and each is located differently, each has a different politics um, so, yeah, that was really wonderful. Um, and also continuing, so the, the concept of ephemerality also evolves into multiple types of transformations. And this, I thought, for me, came across really strongly in your chapter on labor, where majduri becomes Majburid it becomes jugaad It's this ever-evolving nature of ephemerality and it's sort of multiple shades of ephemerality. Um Yeah, and the transformation of lives and transformations of material, transformations of sociality uh, around this ephemeral slash durable um, economy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think also like that the the labor chapter, for example, is really heavy on construction atmospherics or sort of uh, because I feel that construction atmospherics and the kind of, uh, though they're transient, though they're ephemeral, Really tied to political subjectivity because when you are burning your hands uh, on red hot, not red hot, well, hot steel, right? Fifty. Imagine steel in forty-five centigrade heating up, and you're tearing your clothes, and you realize that this is, you know, that you very well realize the difference between the the house you're building versus the house you live in. Uh, And I think that uh, it it is in those moments where you're just, uh, where the sort of sweat and blood, right? The classic Garib Ka Khoon Pasina, the one who sort of sucks the blood of the, and sweat of the poor is really realized and, and, and and sort of understood, but also um, it is within these kind of momentary spaces that workers meet each other and workers connect to each other. So where, uh, also, political consciousness and politi- sorry, political subjectivity or not consciousness gets exchanged uh, and, and sort of people can potentially mobilize. People sh- talk about class inequity. Um, and, uh, but then it's gone or then they move on. and it, that's again, it's not a, it's not just a byproduct of construction. Of course, you know the developers are deliberately disbanding them, they're deliberately moving them. Onto different sites and even sometimes sites just get abandoned so buildings are never finished uh, often they're just left like that and so uh, there is that other ephemeral dimension of abandonment uh, uh, left too yeah
0: yeah, and just connecting to this point of like political subjectivity and politics of labor, the other thing that's really amazing is your focus on um, um, your work in reframing uh, understandings of construction and real estate as an extractive economy and how that somehow gets, that's, I mean, it's so obvious in your writing, but it gets missed somehow in larger debates um, and how that ties to exploitation of labor, but also larger natural environments. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe say a bit more about that, because that's um, that's so important.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's something, Garima, that I felt really strongly about. Uh, a lot of people, when I was workshopping the manuscript, really didn't feel like real estate should be labelled industrial. Uh, and I kept insisting, so there was also a lot of debate around the name of the book. But I I kept insisting that the word industrial and the the conversation on industries has to be present. Uh, And it really was for me, one, because real estate is not seen as an industry, but it very much is. And it is a globally connected industry. So things that are happening, the kind of, actions that are taking place in India are being replicated by the same players. They all sit on each other's boards. So, uh, you know, it's not... uh, And I haven't done the tracing of that. Of course, I got... uh, But, uh, like, you know, some of the information has come from people like Vinay Gidwani, for example. But um, there is this kind of industrial logic and extractive economics that are fundamental to the way in which real estate works. Uh, And so... um, you know, just like cement, sand, steel, you know, just the kind of rapid conversion of green fields to uh, to sort of brownfield lands or to real estate. Uh, it has been, it has fundamentally transformed the ecological landscape of India, um, both at the site where they were constructed, but also where the things were extracted. And in terms of also water, uh, it has a very intimate relationship with water, not only in terms of construction and the way in which it it sucks a water table dry, especially in Gurgaon, uh, but also then through paving and through the sort of, uh, it, it sort of in, in, entices floods because of the kind of hard surfaces it produces. So there are uh, um, the kind of uh, ecological and extractive logics of real estate are, uh, and construction are sort of very, very, damaging uh, to our cities and so so that was yeah, one of the aspects but also just in terms of thinking about industrial urban, uh, the industry and the urban in a kind of quote-unquote post-industrial city uh, where you have, where everyone's arguing that the industrial flight out of urban areas is now producing a very different kind of city uh it was really i really wanted to bring the industrial conversation back into urbanism because it is yes you can say manufacturing has moved to the periphery of cities and things like that but you have all kinds of industrial dynamics and logic so the nature of the urban industry that that frames urbanism and produces urbanism has changed, but the industrial logic is still at work. And so uh, I was really uh, sort of tied to the industrial uh, dimension of these things.
0: Yeah, um, no, you're absolutely right. Because when, even when I picked up this book, uh, reading the title, I, I didn't expect that the book will take me to real estate. But when I finished reading it, it made so much sense that it was framed um, as, as industry, looking at, I mean, industry also as, the industry of the body, the labor of the body, but also understanding industry as extraction, industry as... And, of course, this the, the point that you just made about linking it to a post-industrial city, in quotes. Um, um, yeah. Um, and the sort of next um, question that I wanted to ask was about your attention to sound um, which we just discussed but also thinking of sound again going from the sensorial to to the political and looking at the disciplining mechanism of sound um, and sound as noise and sound as disciplining and sound as so just if you could maybe expand a little on your uh, on your you know the analytic of sound
1: yeah I mean as I said earlier there's no ignoring sound in construction it is all-encompassing and so I was really interested in a mechanical chapter, uh, primarily because of the large-scale presence of machinery. But also, you know, I was coming in post-Commonwealth games. Indus uh, indes- construction industry had really gone through a mechanical revolution. There were all kinds of new machines on site. And that's also why the industry was growing so rapidly, because you could construct much more rapidly, too. And so uh, I, I was very, very interested in a me- mechanical chapter and the primary uh, sort of fear note dimensions of machines were really the, the strong sounds that were emerging out of them um, and, and the kind of sensorial dimensions of those machines. Um, and I, uh, as I said, there's no ignoring sound and therefore sound makes you move. And sound makes you move in particular ways. Uh, and so the rhythms that machines have really frame the ways in which... Uh, People have to move because if you miss a beat, you get injured, uh, you know, so there is a life and death issue around here. If you if you are, if, you know, while the tower train swings, you have to somehow um, in your body know the speed of that swinging uh, because you have to brace a load as it is dropped onto the terrace or move away from a load. Similar with a compactor, you need to know the amount of pressure you need to give it in order for it to be held, but not, you know, put its force on you. So there is something extremely intimate about the body and the machine when you're working together. And its rhythms, its sounds are really something that you have to understand and move to because it will not do the same for you. And so that's where the disciplinary Uh, device comes in is because the machine makes you work to its own beat. The machine makes you move to its own rhythms. Um, And it is through that that it allows for the pace of construction to increase. So there's no stopping until the machine stops because you get hurt uh, if that happens or something grows drastically wrong. And so through that, it sort of accelerates construction work, but also forces workers to be disciplined in certain ways. Um, but of course, like within those, I show that there are all kinds of ways in which this this acceleration and these increased sort of uh, disciplinary sound regimes cause issues. So one is in physical deterioration or this this sort of expulsion of slowness. The other is in this idea of noise and anger, uh, but also in potential social mobility because a lot of machines for some workers have brought economic mobility because machine work, operating a machine gives you more money than doing just you know physical mazduri or helpery uh, on a construction site so the the kinds of uh, the sort of the, the atmospherics of sound have so many different problems and potentials built into it uh, and uh, and that was something i was trying to sort of convey in the chapter
0: yeah I mean, there's disciplining, but also what your attention to sound does is bring a kind of intimacy, uh, an intimacy to the writing, but also a greater understanding of the intimacy between man and machine and the work process um, itself. And uh, that's so effective. Um, Which takes me to my next question, that another sort of great thing about uh, the book is that it's looking at intimacy and durability. And a lot of it is by paying attention to forces of materiality and sociality, but it also captures so many, um, you know, so many of these very ephemeral things like, like love or like ghosts, uh, which haunt empty buildings or sound. I mean, these, these objects or subjects of inquiry are also so ephemeral in themselves and they all get tied together in this wonderful way. Um, yeah, so maybe if you want to speak a little about how these more ephemeral um, aspects of social life also get drawn into the analysis.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I have to say that I just, they were not something I was interested in, Uh, but I got a lot of love stories. And I think it is a product of being a middle-class woman on a construction site, especially in North India, where there are very few women who turn up on construction sites of my class category. Uh, There are a lot of helpers, but even those, uh, the numbers are dwindling because of issues related to, um, you know, child labor and uh, people are afraid of sex workers on construction sites, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, But uh, so I just got a lot of stories of love and then some contractors figured out that I'm scared of ghosts and then they told me a lot of ghost stories. But people also, because uh, this is also just part of the belief system uh, in India that there is this kind of, uh, there is a strong uh, um, sort of belief in so- the supernatural world and the ways it in informs uh, the-, the sort of physical world. And uh, it was not something I was particularly interested in, but uh, everybody who works in construction really strongly, be- well, not everybody, but a lot of the folks I spoke to really believe in ghosts of the space that they're working in because they do believe that, construction up it creates an upheaval and through that the spirit world or this this sort of the the kind of uh, tra- the, the ghost world emerges in those upheavals and and makes their presence known so for them construction and ghosts go hand in hand and so i got a lot of stories of them encountering ghosts on past sites uh you know, of spirits being present in spaces they worked in uh, primarily because many of them believe that the, that is the nature of their work, because they destroy something that has an intimate relationship to someone else. And therefore, there will always be that spirit world. And in a, in, in a similar way, I mean, love is, is a different thing. I wasn't looking for it, but it was like literally on the walls everywhere. And I and and the fact that, you know, like so many of the workers in construction are young men who are like, you know, falling in love. And so there was, there was just a lot of, um, and, and, I, and, and after the fact, I realized that the, the emotion is constitutive of real estate. And I think that is, you know, classic sort of property, patriarchy relations, but also, you know, the, the multiple dimensions that I talk about in the chapter um, it really feeds the real estate industry. And so, again, I never went looking for it, but that was just something people spoke to me a lot about loving their kids, loving their wife, because they couldn't, you know, we couldn't have that hyper masculine sort of um, bromancy relationship, you know, with foremen and contractors. So it was all about how much they love their families, love their mothers, love their wives, you know, with a pinch of salt. But, you know, there was this kind of expression. Of uh, of sort of love relationships that they had that would normally not be conveyed to a man, um, you know, if uh, because of the nature of the interpersonal encounter.
0: But it's so true that this is really a book quite truly born out of close listening uh, because when, so for example, when the chapter on love started, I thought, okay, maybe this is going to be about um, the masculine nature of this space or maybe just about these hetero heterosexual relationships and longing and migration or something but then it also became about love and family it also became about children, it also became about capital and property and I think because you're listening really with your ear to the ground and just following the stories whenever. They take you. It, there's also this, you know, huge analytical expanse that you can, you know, you can capture, uh, and you know, just I mean, just the chapter on love is such a good example of how 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 seamlessly these different scales um, they work together. Um, So then maybe a question on your writing. Uh, How did you do it? I I would love to sort of hear about your writing process, your writing inspirations, uh, because one of the great things about this book is it's not like this, you know, like uh, this solid, concrete, analytical concept of ephemeral that's then imposed on this, you know, material landscape of construction. The book itself is so breathable. It's, you know, the writing has the quality of ephemerality to it. Um, So we'd love to hear about your writing um, and how, how you do it
1: yeah i mean thanks uh i feel like um you know as a i was born in india i, I did i studied in india and you know i went to uh and I, I went through an architectural education and anthropology was my first sort of foray into the human humanities and social sciences so when i came in i was a i didn't know any of that language uh, and I spent the first two years, and they were incredibly violent years, in, A, being immersed in theory, but B, trying to fit myself into that theoretical mold uh, that, uh, that, and that analytical mold that was just not me. And so I spent, and, you know, I, I read the stuff I wrote, and I'm just like, that's terrible. And, I, and I, I have to say, I really am grateful. So Mary Steedley was one of my advisors. And uh, she's always, she, she had a great love for ethnographic writing. And uh, she caught me in a corridor one day and just said, Namita, what's happening with your work? She wasn't on my committee then. And I said, I'm, I'm having trouble getting grants. And she said, okay, come to my office. And so we just started working on writing. I started working on writing with her. But in the end, she just started beating out the fakeness of my writing, being like, That's just not you. Who are you trying to be? Why are you trying to, you know, why are you trying to fit into that academic mold? And I remember one clear moment where I was shown her some writing and she said, let me close my office door so I can yell at you without anyone seeing. And it is that because I think that, uh, you know, being a, a South Asian diasporic woman in American academia, you're, you really feel internally and externally forced to perform a certain kind of analytical mindset or a certain form of writing mindset that is very typical of US academia. And I think I, I owe Mary a lot because she gave me the freedoms to, like, or she reminded me that I don't need to be that person. The, that, you know, that was causing me a lot of violence. And second, like both of us adored fiction You know, I adore a lot of political ecology and a lot of the a lot of feminist scholars and anthro who have written, you know, against the tide, primarily because they felt like a certain kind of feminist politics, queer politics cannot emerge out of the kind of colonial analytical writing epistemologies that we are forced to subscribe to uh, in, in anthropological education and so um yeah so and in the end it didn't feel real right and so i think in the end i wrote from who i am and what i i was part of rather than and i and it's still there i mean you can still see the need to prove myself theoretically in in different ways or the need to sort of push back against certain folks and i think um it's you know um I'm I'm excited to see where my second book goes. I'll just say that because I'm a different person after writing this one. Uh, but I feel like different I was-
0: because different because um because there is now some validation that you can you can write like this and you can be your own person.
1: Yes, and also validation that I am an anthropologist. I have written an you know I'm I am an academic, and this was a dissertation originally, right? And so there was a certain kind of uh Uh, a kind of referencing work that the first book often does just because it needs to position Mm -hmm. yourself yourself in academia and it's always why I've always loved second books of authors because they're they're just uh they're freer, they're more creative, not that I'm saying mine will be, but uh, it's something that I can see them be like, I'm just gonna be me now. And like, you know, there is this kind of break of or greater freedom. or, or maybe witchful thinking on my part, but we'll see.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're like eight-year-old women who are now finally free. Uh, yeah, and they joke freely about sex joke freely about food and you know yeah um, yeah but now you've said violence three times and I'm curious if you want to say more about the violence of academia, the violence of field work the violence of writing um... yeah I
1: mean it is all violent I mean there's a lot of violence in academia there's a lot of violence in field work I think that uh, neither of the two are well no that's not true we talk about it a lot uh, but I think that Uh, A lot more now, I think, in the past five, 10 years, given the conversations in anthropology, the conversations in academia, conversations in the world, um, you know, there has been, there are ways in which BIPOC folks, you know, have been forced to write in certain ways, or, you know, uh, folks of certain kinds of backgrounds are, who don't feel that they fit in the academic mold. We have felt the need to fit in the academic mold, or felt the violence of that. And most certainly, many of my students and I have these conversations now about art and design. So it's not only anthropology specific. And um, I and I think you know, I mean, my fieldwork was violent, and not in the sense that anyone attacked me. I mean, I definitely had some. Anyway, we'll talk about. We can talk about that later, but. Uh, that it is a vulnerable space for it was a vulnerable space for a woman to be but it's also violent fundamentally because everyone around me was not the way I was and in the sense that you know it was a time where there was a lot of uh, Islamophobia rising Islamophobia people felt they could freely talk about um, be homophobic Islamophobic Uh, there was a certain kind of um cast based mold that I had to perform there was a certain kind of good girl or good young woman uh, mold that I had to uh, sort of take upon myself so I kind of had to be Haryanvi like a Haryanvi child in that sense and I really wasn't and so in that sense that there, that uh, that was very violent on me in and my own personhood. I felt because I kind of lost myself in those, in the in those one and a half years, and it is a vulnerable space. I think rightly so. Anthropology often talks about the power equation between the ethnographer and the people they're working with, and and I think those dynamics are important. Uh, but they're also you know I've had students or you know i have had people share issues of like all kinds of broad range issues around assault and vulnerability uh you know of a kind of trauma uh, having to put yourself in extreme situations in order to gain information uh and we don't talk about that enough as a community uh and what that means uh and why I, you know uh, why doing something dangerous is then rewarded, um, you know. And I think about like uh, Seth, Seth Holmes's Broken Bodies, where he's crossing the border illegally. Uh, and I'm just thinking about how that then instantly in our minds becomes, oh, this is such a great book. Like this is amazing fieldwork. But uh, what that what that journey entails on, yes, the people they're working with, and that's why the ethnographer wanted to know. But there is a certain kind of uh, violence that we have to relive in order to write about violence. And so, uh, and I think, yeah, uh, you know, that's a question on the table. And then, of course, like construction is very violent. It's, you know, it's dirty politics. Everybody had guns.
0: but that violence did you decide to not um, make it very present in the writing of the book or um, how did you how
1: did you deal with
0: so yeah, one the question of the violence that I didn't want to write writing.
1: about violence when writing about Haryana is because everybody likes to talk about Haryana and Haryanvis as violent people and i think that there is a certain kind of orientalist attitude in that where like the urban middle class is like oh the jats or like you know there is this kind of casteism uh and you know oh the uh, like this is you know that movie nha H eight where like uh, people go around shooting so i didn't want to sensationalize the the violence in the book because there was always already a way of reading haryana and haryanvi's as violent And uh, not to say that this violence does not exist in Bombay or does not exist in like the elite areas of Delhi. And so uh, the reason why I didn't put it in the book was because I didn't want Haryana to be read that way because there are different kinds of Haryana and there are different kinds of Haryanvis And uh, this violence is not Haryana specific. Uh, This violence is just embedded into real estate politics. And so I do have an article I'm working on, which has been a long time in the making, but it really, it builds a lot of those violent moments together, uh, you know, not violence and sort of patriarchal relations on women and the, the way in which women are controlled, the actual gun violence and sort of the, the real sort of real that sort of undergoes, you know, you think of Ponti Chadda and his brother shooting themselves as the kind of classic image of of that real estate violence but growing up i grew up in bombay and i grew up you know i studied at jj which is near vt station and we'd have like I, it was the height of the mafia wars when i was in school and when i was in college and it was all all connected to real estate so that's not a a, a specific locationality and i was very clear on the fact that i did not want to sensationalize Haryanvi violence. And then have it feed that stereotype uh, of a uh, quote unquote backward India, right? Because that was also the way in which Gurga was talked about, is that this, this, this elite jungle rises out of backward, uh, you know, backward class or whatever. It's like there was those words were literally at play in the in the newspapers when I was doing field work and very much is sort of part of the Indian psyche.
0: Yeah, but you know your point on your point on vulnerability that is so present in the book because I mean because the writing is so um, sensory. We are there with you when you're in the car driving all these long distances, or when you're in the pit, and we are there. You know when you have to feign innocence about sex or marriage or love. So uh, I mean, I could always feel that you were this, you know, alone figure in this hypermasculine space and. um, and that you were navigating the space. It was so present throughout. Um, yeah, but thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on the book. Um, but maybe if I could ask you to speak a little about where you're headed next and what your what your second and hopefully freer book is going to <laughs> grapple with. Uh,
1: yeah, though the first book was pretty free too. I really wrote, I feel like I was happy with, I wrote how I wanted it to write, write it. So, uh, But I, I for my second project, I'm looking at, uh, I'm still interested in labor. I'm still interested in urban environments, but I'm kind of interested in the sort of classic Marx, Marxist work rest table relationships. I'm interested in, rest and sleep, uh, and I'm, I want to look at uh, different spaces of sleep uh, where uh, there is a strong work and sleep connection. So, for example, uh, pavement dwelling uh, where uh, pavement workers are allowed the right to sleep on a pavement because they work in that spot, um, or spaces like um, rest houses that sort of allow folks to rest and then trading communities and uh, i'm moving to bombay for it uh primarily i'm also interested in the economic political economic dimensions of a city that claims to never sleep and uh, you know and and sort of uh, be awake the whole night and what rest means uh, within that context so and again, it's a multi-scalar one, which will of course be labeled as ambitious and complicated, uh, but I believe I can do it because I'm interested in like the scalar, right? Body, then the space around it, and then also planetary rest. So it's also uh, the political ecological dimensions of what what happens when we rest. And, you know, not only to political economy, but also ecological uh, sort of mental rela- health relations, et cetera. So- yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, still in the works, so to speak. Mm. Wow, sounds sounds
0: absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, uh, oh, this was really really fun. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on the book uh, and sharing your process um, behind it. I learned so much, uh, and this was such a great book to read. And I'm so happy I started my year with 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 your book. Um, yes thank you thank you very much um, I wonder I mean if you have
1: any sort of closing thoughts no, to share no I want to thank you for so you know so generously engaging with it I'm really uh, and, and getting it too because not everybody gets it so I really appreciate your careful read of it and uh, also, yeah, I can't you know, wait for
0: your next book
1: <laughs> your time and labor because you know that's a lot in academia too so I appreciate that thank you
0: Yeah. No, uh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, um, Yeah. Thank you very much.